And if you're there already, Isaiah 43, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful and so blessed for the opportunity tonight to read and to study your word. I, I ask, Lord, that you would grant us your spirit and help us to understand the words that we are to receive tonight from you. We thank you, Lord, for your, your care and your concern for your people. And I pray, Father, that we will take that to heart. Because it's easy for us, Lord, not to take certain things to heart. And to put them aside for another time, or as they say, a rainy day. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that is important for us. Because it's the day in which we are in this place, in Christ, and in your word. And as we look for the day to come, the day of Jesus Christ, may we prepare ourselves for that coming day. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I am always amazed at the grace and mercy and long-suffering that the God of all creation shows and extends to his wayward people Israel, even after they are exposed as sinful, self-willed, rebellious, deaf and blind. As we read last time, paying no attention whatsoever to their mission as God's servants and messengers of His truth, nor to the chastisements of the Lord. Just, just think of the last two verses of the previous chapter. Just look back two verses before chapter 43. In verses 24 and 25 of chapter 42, just as a reminder and as a review. It says, who gave, who gave uh, Jacob? It's a question. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned? This is the prophet Isaiah speaking. He says, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger, the strength of, of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know. And it burned him, and notice this last phrase, yet he did not take it to heart. Now you all understand what it means to take something to heart. Somebody asks you to consider something, and, and they say, you know, basically they're, they're just wanting to, get, to gain all of your attention and just say, well, you just take it to heart. They may not use those terms, but would you just really think and concern yourself with the things that we're talking about? Would you take it to heart? And can you imagine, I mean, if we don't do that as often as we should amongst ourselves, just as we ought to be as courteous and as kind to one another as we should, can you imagine not doing that with the God who has the power to, 
to chastise you with, with, with all kinds of, uh, of uh, punishments, as it were. It's an interesting thought. But his very own people are not taking the things that were happening to them to heart. In other words, they paid no attention that they didn't take anything being done to them by the Lord to their very heart. What a sad commentary, you see, on the, on the collective condition of the heart of a blessed and sanctified nation and people. They were blessed, weren't they? They were a blessed people because God loved them. God chose them and God loved them. And, they, and we can't go down some list to say, well, He chose them only because of this, 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 and this, and this. Because it tells us very clearly He chose them because He loved them. And God can do that if He wants. But the fact of the matter is, he blessed them and then he sanctified them. He set them apart as his very own people to be the ones to bring the truth of the person and work of God to all the nations. Not just Israel, but to all the nations. Israel is the light and the wisdom and the witness of God. And so here it is a sad thing to see this this condition of, of a nation's heart before their God, even, even in, in, in their soon-to-come exile, as they will after all of this stuff, they're going to be taken into exile in Babylon, would they remain deaf and blind? They would remain deaf and blind. Turn, turn forward, if you will, to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, verse 2. And there's some sense here to understand what is going on in the future, the near future for them. But it says, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? This is God coming to them in the midst of their struggle and trial. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and they die of thirst. And so there is this... this, this sense that they remained deaf, they remained blind. God coming to them to bless them, to strengthen them, to comfort them in the midst of their trials, but uh, there's no response to God. But over and against this darkness of of Israel's anguish and, and Israel's sin, the prophet Isaiah would once again superimpose the joyous future which is where we are here in chapter 43. That in spite of Israel's sin, the Lord will redeem them. And I believe that this is, this is something that we in the church have to, have to really take to heart, if we can use that terminology tonight, as we already have. But take it to heart how important Israel is to God today. How important Israel is to God right now. How important the promises that God has made about Israel then are still for today. That, that really is, is the crux of a, of a major problem in the church today in, in that much of the church does not look at modern day Israel as having any, any connection whatsoever to the biblical Israel. And when we begin to replace Israel with the church as if to say the only thing that matters now is that we are going to receive all the blessings that would have gone to Israel but it's only for the church 
you have to understand one thing, that if you're going to be biblical, then you can't, you can't just take the blessings. You're going to have to take the blessings and the curses too. <laughs> so if you don't understand then that there's still an Israel that needs to be dealt with, that God has not finished dealing with His people, then, then we're, we're really off on a tangent when it comes to last day's prophecy and to the prophecies that, that we've been dealing with, not only in the book of Isaiah, but as we've been covering, uh, looking at, at uh, modern day issues, as we're looking at the, what's happening today. And the, fo- the focal point, or as Joel Rosenberg says, the epicenter is still Israel, and it is still, uh, in the crosshairs is the city of Jerusalem. Still, to this day. And people don't want to believe and they don't want to accept that truth. But I, I wonder, and I, I ask this question just from the depth of my own heart, I, I ask the question, how many of us have ever thanked the Jewish people for, for just taking God's word and being keepers of it the way they have for it to get to come to us so pure and so right for them to to stay though they were wandering in all kinds of different directions and going one place or another and now they're gathering together again have we ever thought about just thanking God for them or thanking them you know for for their faithful, their faithfulness as, as much as kept their word and the word of God together for us to have as we do. A lot of civilizations even younger than them have not been able to stay together and keep together the things, that, the truths that they have kept together. Though, we would say, why didn't they really trust them as much as they said they would? Nonetheless, the word is still sacred. And it is still, and, and the name of God is sacred. And, and these are things that we cannot take away from our own Judeo-Christian heritage. So now we see here God saying to them, in spite of all of these things, I will redeem you. That is a tremendous promise. Look again at verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Those names are very prominent, very important for us. O Jacob, O Israel. You in in both states and conditions that you have been in. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And, and, and what he means here is that he will redeem them, but in God's heart he has redeemed them. You see? You see the tense there? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. The first two words, but now, there in, in verse 1, introduce what some theologians call the promise of imminent reversal. The promise of imminent reversal, which means that it is the promise of forthcoming reversal or impending reversal. As you have been going in this direction, I'm going to redeem you and bring you back in this other direction. And it is an impending, it is an imminent, it is a forthcoming thing. It is clearly a promise given by the Lord who is Israel's creator and fashioner. Remember he says, I created you, I formed you. 
But I didn't want to say that he was our creator and, and, or their creator and their former. It sounds better to say his, their fashioner. <laughs> so he is Israel's creator and fashioner, not to mention their redeemer. Not to mention their redeemer. And so before all else, the Lord God states emphatically the great imperative, fear not. Fear not. Do not fear. Do not fear. These are commanding words. In other words, this is a command, not a suggestion. Fear not. These are commanding words calling a discouraged, a disheartened people to take courage because the Lord will redeem His people and He will call them by name and and, and He will say to them that most special statement, You are mine. You see, we can't get beyond that, can we? Can, Can we ever get beyond the fact that He's saying to them, You're mine. What has He just said about their heart? What has He just said about their sin? And all the things. And yet He keeps coming back and saying, But you're mine. I mean, we can't let these thoughts get out of our, out of our system as, as we're studying about uh, Israel in the book of Isaiah. Israel has been created by God and therefore they are His possession. They were created by God to be His people. They are His possession. And on top of it all, And this is a very important point. They are twice owned by God. Israel is twice owned by God. How is that? Because it tells us here He is both their Creator and their Redeemer. He has made them, therefore they are His possession. And He has redeemed them because He has bought them back. 17 of 18 times the word redeemer is found in the scriptures in the book of Isaiah 17 times out of 18 times it's an important point in the book of Isaiah that God is their redeemer there is a personal certainty that when God says I have called you by name now consider this a personal certainty That when God says, I have called you by name, you are mine, there is no doubt that redemption, there is no doubt of that redemption, for the Lord has sealed it with His very word. He says, I have called you by name, you are mine. Personal, certain. I like the very fact that that, that that applies to us today too. That if we are His, not only coming to the realization in our own hearts and minds that, that, that God created us and we believe that God created us, but the very fact that we were bought with the blood of Christ, what a beautiful thing it is to say, He knows my name. He knows my name. We all have a lot of names. But he knows our name. We all have nicknames, don't we? All kinds of names. Aliases, some of us. No, I'm just kidding. We could have all kinds of little... But he still knows our name. He knows who we are. I sometimes wonder about those people today who feel that they have to change their names. You know. Like, I can't ever understand this one. 50 cent. What is that? People change their names to funny stuff. 
50 cent? Is that a peseta? You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It just it doesn't make sense to me, you know. And, I, and I'm not even going to go into other names. But you, know, but, but you know what? He knows our name. And I hope and pray that we know his voice when he calls us by name. But he knows his name, the name of his people. I've called you by name. You're mine. There's no doubt of that redemption. The Lord seals it with his word. And the word translated redeemed, by the way, in our text, is the Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer. It is the word goel. The kinsman redeemer. A near relative who could free family members and their property from bondage by paying their debts for them as, as you read in the book of Ruth, as Boaz did for Ruth and, and in, in reality for Naomi as well. He was their kinsman redeemer. Consider, if you will, the price that was paid for us by our kinsman redeemer. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Remember this from Sunday, uh, Sunday morning or Saturday night? For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But the first part of the verse, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, or silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but, and here's, here's grammatically is what it says, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. I don't know about you, but I tell you, that stirs my heart. It just, it just moves my heart to think that, that He, you know, as we sang tonight, amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Isn't that an amazing thought? Do we just not let that sink in for just a minute? I'll give you a minute. Well, I'll give you a couple of seconds anyway, because I've got to go on. But Tonight, you let it sink in. And you think about this when you pray tonight before you go to bed. And think what an amazing grace God has extended to us. It is amazing, isn't it? You see, the problems with the world today is the world has so, so much fanfare and so much need for all kinds of, of, of sensationalism and if we don't have the, you know, the, the firecrackers going off and the fireworks jumping up in the air, if we don't have the bands playing and the orchestras playing, the people dancing people singing and everything going on all at one time because we need that stimulation it, when does it ever come down to the very heart that we see amazing love how can it be that you, my King, holy above all things, holy above all ways, came to this earth to die for me? And he came without all that fanfare. Came as a little child and born in, in, in a stable and placed in a manger and, 
you probably can tell I'm, I'm ready for Christmas. The fact is, what an amazing God we serve. And along with the sentiments given in verse 1 are some of the tenderest words that the, the Lord ever spoke to His children in the next few verses. Look at verses 2 through 4. Not just when he says, you know, that uh, I have called you by name, you are mine, I have redeemed you. But listen to verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Mark that, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And notice verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored. And I have loved you. Look at those, those phrases in verse 4. Since you were precious in my sight, precious in my sight. You've been honored. You have been honored. God is honoring His people. And then He says, And I have loved you. You see, these, these aren't just little, you know, kind of hallmark sentiments. God is just throwing out there to kind of like, you look like you had a bad day. Why don't I just say, uh, yeah, I love you. That's the way it is sometimes. I mean, we, we, have, we have a heart's desire to see somebody encouraged, so we might give them a card or a letter or something. But oftentimes we're so fast-paced today, and we just kind of drop a letter here and there, a little, little note. Hi, how's it going? You know, let's have lunch. And it might not have the impact, but this is impacting. <laughs> when God says, and, and, I have loved you. I have loved you. Therefore, I'll give you, I will give men for you and people for your life. I mean, these words were addressed to people who would be far from home. Remember, it's a message going to exile. Uh, they're far from home, still in the midst of their own fires, their own deep waters, with a lot more trials to face before they would ever reach their final destination and rest, which would mean coming out of exile and going back into the land of Israel and back into the city of Jerusalem. But what we find here is not so much a, a promise or a, or a quick fix or a, a future without troubles and trials. Don't we all want that? I mean, we all want a life that has no, you know, that has just a, a quick, easy solution. The easy button. How many of you have an easy button? Anybody? I want, I, you know, I wish we had a Staples in town. I, can I have an easy button? How much are they? You ever seen that? Or what, do you, what about the, perf, the perfect place with Walgreens? Have you seen the Walgreens commercials? The perfect place, you know. They're playing baseball and the guy slides home and there's not even, you know, you see the dust, but there's no dust on his uniform. It's pure white. The perfect place. We want life to be that way. Of course they tell you, well, life's not that way. What they don't tell you is it's really a lot worse. 
So we're not finding here so much a promise of a quick fix or a future without troubles and trials, but we are finding out that, of, uh, that promise of God sustaining, supporting, and undergirding presence right through to the very end, no matter what. That's what He's telling His people. I'm going to be with you. You, you might go through these, these uh, pass through the waters, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you when you go through rivers. I'll go with you. I'll be with you when you walk through the fire. You're not going to be burned because I'll be with you. Sound familiar? Sounds like the Hebrew children that were thrown into a fire in the time of Daniel. I might be getting ahead of myself, but that's what it sounds like, isn't it? Thrown into a fire, but you won't be burned. You won't be scorched. The promise goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. You can go back to Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, where God says, Be strong and of good courage. Actually, Moses is saying this of God. He says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. That same promise moves on into the the, the life of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, God even says this to him now. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And even down to the time of Jesus, when Jesus is preparing to, be a, uh, to, to ascend back into heaven, sit at the right hand of the Father, he tells his disciples in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I'm with you always. In essence, what he was saying was to them was, I'll never leave you nor forsake you because I'll be with you all the way to the end. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you all the way. I'm not going anywhere. How comforting it was when you would tell your, your, your child that, you know. Take their first ride at Western Playland. They didn't want you to, they didn't want you to leave. And you say, I'll, I'll be with you all the way. And even when you got them strapped in and they're going around, they're still looking at you. Make sure you're still there. You say, I'm still here. I'll never leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'll be with you all the way to the end. All the way to the end of the ride. It's the way I thought I was learning how to ride a bicycle. And, and an older cousin of mine was teaching me how to ride a bicycle. So I, was a, I was a little short, fat, you know, chubby guy. And I'd get on a bicycle and I'd do one of these things. So he said, look, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be pushing you. Behind you. As long as he was back there... You know, I, I rode straight. I was confident. We do it day every day, you know. And one day he says, okay, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Okay, okay. So off we go. And he pushes me and gets me started. I'm going really good. And he let go. But I didn't know that. And I'm riding good. And I'm thinking I'm doing great. I say, hey, man, this is great. And I didn't hear any response. And I started wondering, where was he? Right into a bush. I hated him for it. I was going to kill him. But I didn't. He was trying to teach me to be a little bit more self-reliant in that 
particular case. But God says, I'm not going to leave you. I'll be with you all the way to the end. Under the Lord's protection, Israel will always be safe, unharmed by water or fire. Notice, if you will, the thought in our text that trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. It doesn't say if you pass through the waters. What does it say? When? When you pass. It doesn't say if you pass. It says when you pass. The Lord is going to be with His people in the toughest of circumstances. And as in life, troubles are are varied. Sometimes we face waters, deep waters that seem to overwhelm us to the point of us drowning in them. Other times we just face rivers that could be just as deep, but at least we see the other side. Or we face sometimes the fires of this life. But when you think about it in those terms, these things are nothing in the presence of Almighty God. They are nothing in the presence of God. I bring you back to that thought of Daniel and the three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who would not bow, you see? To Nebuchadnezzar or to the images, as it were. And so Nebuchadnezzar ready just, you know, toss them right into a fire. That was their punishment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel 3, verse 16, answered, they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <clears throat> if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Well, you talk about standing on your convictions. The very first answer he gives is tremendous. If that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. No matter whether he delivers us and keeps us alive, or even if we die, he delivers us from you. You see the conviction here. Either way, we're safe. Because we know the God who made us. We know Him. And He knows us. And we know the outcome of that, don't we? Three Hebrew young men are thrown into a fire. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, he sees four. He sees four. One like the Son of Man. And who could that be? but the Lord himself with us in the fire. Why? Because we've already read it. He said, I'm going to be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers or you pass through the fires, it's okay. I'll be with you. Well, getting back to our text once again, the strong encouragement given in this passage is anchored in those great truths of creation and redemption. He is the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the Savior and Redeemer who is everything, if not ambitious toward His people. For He offers Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba as a ransom 
payment to redeem Israel from Babylon. All because Israel was so precious to him. And of course, he gave his own son for lost sinners. Matthew 20, verse 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul also reminds us in 1 Timothy 5 verses, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so he gave something for a ransom for his people. In this particular case, he gives enemies, Egypt, Ethiopia, Seba, as a ransom payment to redeem Israel. And Israel could certainly have hope for the future. They could have hope for the future since, since the Lord not only has called them by name, but by promising that he would release them from the shackles of their exile, as well as uh, predict a regathering long after their return from Babylonian captivity. Now we come to a place where we have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Look at verses 5 through 7, Isaiah 43. God says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, Do not keep them back. Now, that's quite an interesting picture coming from the north, south, east, west. Because in reality, they were where? They were in Babylon. They were east. So they were going to come from the east in the near fulfillment. God is now pointing to a far fulfillment where the people are going to be scattered to all parts of the earth. What is happening today? What are we seeing as as a very important sign of these end times? The regathering of the people of Israel. The regathering of the Jews in Israel. That is a significant point in Bible prophecy. And it's happening today. It is a fulfillment of prophecy right now that we can just say, that's happening. Bring my sons, he says, from afar. And my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Once again, we come back to the issue of being creator and redeemer. The Lord not only has created his people, but he has done so with a purpose. Folks, we are created with a purpose, along with Israel. Now that we have been born again of the Spirit of God, now that we have been born again in in Jesus Christ, we have a purpose. He created us for his glory. Now, from the very beginning, he created us for his glory, but we were born in sin. Had to be until we came to the knowledge of Christ. But the, but the important thing is that now that we've come to the knowledge of Christ, we need to realize that we've been created for his glory. If there is no creator, then we are purposeless and without direction. And if you do a little bit of a, of a, of a study on, 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 on the, scien- the scientific quote-unquote, study of evolution and taking things to billions and billions of of years in the past as being when some uh, prehistoric slime 
just kind of happen and then all of a sudden this is what came down over millions of years to happen. Well, where's the purpose of life then? Where's the purpose? Where's the direction? But because there is a creator, he created us all with a purpose. On the other hand, when, when we glorify God, we, we fulfill the purpose which we were created for. And because of this, we will be the most happy and fulfilled people in the entire world. The joy of the Lord truly is our strength. Turn to Nehemiah for just a moment. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verses 9 and 10. The people had gathered to hear the word of God and they began to hear the word of God being being given forth and, and the people began to weep. They, they wept because the word of God was, was, was convicting their hearts of their sin. And it's a heavy duty thing when our hearts are open to the word of God and we bow to the just to the, 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 the heaviness of, of the, the, the truth of God's Word and, and where we have failed, it just weighs us down. And, 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 and notice what happens in verse 9. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. That is significant. For in most cases, you know, when there's that day, that holy day or that holy con- convocation, as it were, of gathering people. They would gather and they would, you know, weep and mourn because of their sin. The day of of atonement, Yom Kippur, a day of, 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 of realizing these things. But this is significant that it says, this day is holy to the Lord your God, but do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law, as I said. But then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. And send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the fact is that when we are glorifying God, we are fulfilling that purpose. When we are filled with joy unto the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that, that, that we don't suffer and and have pain or grief over certain things that have happened in our lives or in the the lives of our family or lives of our loved one. doesn't mean that we don't hurt. but, But the fact of the matter is we know that there is a God who gives us strength, who gives us wisdom, who gives us comfort, who gives us consolation when we need all of these things. And we can rejoice because He's the God who is in control of all things. And we don't have to be in control. Because if we know ourselves, we realize that we can lose control awfully quick. We can lose control quickly. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always, Paul said. And again I say, rejoice. Israel was not only God's servant, but he was also his witness to the world. And we've got to move on here, but in verses 8 and 9 it says, Bring out the blind people who have eyes, and the deaf people who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. What is all of that about? Well, before his people can serve as his witnesses, he calls them out, 
the blind and the deaf, remember that's what he called them at the end of the last chapter, to be gathered with all the nations in another courtroom scene. Remember now in the last few weeks we've been dealing with this courtroom scene that God opens up, not only to his people, but to all the world. But this time the Lord himself is on trial. In time past, who was on trial? The idols were on trial. But now God is on trial here. He puts himself on trial. And what is his claim? His claim is this. He alone is God. He alone is God. That's his claim. The problem is that he is accused of lying. Hey, he's accused of lying every day, isn't he? In our day and time. Oh, you Christians, you know, or, or you people who just believe in a single God, you know, and one. Well, there's many gods. There's many ways to enlightenment. There's many ways to nirvana. There's many ways to, you know, whatever. No, God said there's there's only one God, and He's it. He's God. And that's what that's that's the courtroom we're in right now, because His rivals, the gods of the pagans have as their witnesses the many people who worship them. This is the courtroom scene that we see here in these two verses. The Lord has only the blind and the deaf captives. Can you imagine? These are your witnesses, blind and deaf. You think, I don't think he's going to win here. <laughs> but you see, what may have been and seemed a hopeless case turns, out, turns on the strength of God's power turns on the strength of God's wisdom, turns on the strength of God's foreknowledge to proclaim the former things, such as the prediction of Cyrus. That is what it says when he talks about former things here. He says, And let the people be assembled who among them can declare this and show us former things. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is true. In other words, even to this day when we have these higher critics who are saying, well, there's, there's more than just one Isaiah writing here because he had to have, have written something, you know, based upon the fact that, you know, how could he have named Cyrus, you know, 150 years before he shows up on the scene? So it has to be a, another Isaiah during the time of Cyrus and when Cyrus does rise up, he goes ahead and names him then. No, no, no. It's one Isaiah, names him 150 years before and he's saying, hey, who of you can, can, can argue this point of former things? The idols were challenged, you see, to produce witnesses or just to say that when God, what God predicted is true. And that's what he says. You know, you either say that uh, you've got witnesses or else let them hear say it is truth. At this point, everything changes now in the courtroom as God speaks to his witnesses. Look at verse 10. Remember, they're the deaf and the blind. He says, you're my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. We have an eternal God. Nobody created God. God has always been. And that's where we don't understand eternity until we get there. But that is our God. I am that I am. I am, I have always been, I will always be, I will ever be. I am that I am. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and is saved, I have proclaimed. Notice that, I have declared, saved, proclaimed. And there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord. 
that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? You see, when God does something, who can change what God does? No one has ever been able to change anything that God has ever done. Because everything that God does will always be perfect. It will always be done at the right time. It will always be done at the right way. And there was no way that man or anything else can ever change that. God's people had witnessed the greatness of God. That's the thing. From the very beginning, God's people have witnessed the greatness of God. The idol gods, on the other hand, were unable to meet that challenge. Israel was no longer deaf and blind. Their blindness and their deafness were swallowed up by a new confidence and a new assurance in their eternal and all-powerful God. He says, I am God. There is no other. I am He. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. And they were going to be more than passive, casual observers. Folks, we need to take this lesson and put it into the church today. Israel was no longer to be a casual observer. They were to be more than a passive, casual observer. Israel was not chosen to sit around and to glory in their chosenness. The church needs to wake up to that as well. Israel was, was chosen to serve the Lord and to know the Lord and to believe Him in all things. That means that when we are called to do, we are to do be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. That is what we are called to do. And so was Israel. They were not chosen to sit around and just to glory in their chosenness. We do not do that as believers in Jesus Christ. Or at least we ought not to. We are to know the Lord. When we see that, that uh, designation upon Peter and, and John, in the book of Acts, we've been studying that in the last few weeks, where they were calling them, we thought they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they know Jesus. You see, it's who they knew. And it changed everything because they were filled with the Spirit and they knew Jesus. And everything they did from that point on after Pentecost was with the power of the Holy Spirit, was with the power of God upon their lives. He says, you are my witnesses. It was in the history of Israel that God had revealed himself to the world and that God has revealed himself. That's why I asked you earlier, have you ever thanked Israel? Have you ever thanked the Jewish people? Listen again. It is in the history of Israel that God has revealed himself to the world. Frederick the Great once asked the Marquis de Argent, can you give me one single irrefutable proof of God? Can you give me one single irrefutable proof of God? And the Marquis replied, Yes, Your Majesty, the Jews. The Jews. They are the single irrefutable proof that there is a God. Because they're still around. And no matter how much, and how, 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 how much Satan has tried to destroy them throughout the centuries, they're still here. The fact of the matter is that there are no rival gods of equal value uh, uh, and, and there are no junior level gods as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim about Jesus. Which, by the way, is contradictory, isn't it, to, to their own beliefs about no other gods but one? Contradictory if they think that Jesus is just a lesser God. Well, wait a minute, you said there's only one God. Yet the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. That's for another time. By the way, the Lord God is the only Savior who has done any good whatsoever. The Lord God is the only Savior who has ever done any good whatsoever. 
our ever-present help in time of need. Yet why do so many turn to Him, the only Savior, as a last resort? Can you answer that? It amazes me that the Lord is the only Savior who said, I, will, I, I am ever present with you, and yet how many people just turn to Him as the last resort? Folks, He's the only resort. Now, the only resort people think about today is, you know, sandals or club med. But Jesus is the only resort. He's the first, last, and only. We find ourselves in need. Paul McCartney used to sing, When I find myself in times of trouble, he should have said, Jesus. He said, Mother Mary, but I don't know what that means. All I know is, hey, when we find ourselves in times of trouble, (laughs) Jesus is there. Because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now, since Jesus is clearly our Savior, as we are told in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember now what we heard here that God was saying, right? He's the only Savior. That's what we just read. There is, I even I am the Lord, and beside me there's no Savior. Okay, you saw that? Uh, and, and, and so we just read that in Philippians 3.20. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Notice verse 10. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, right? Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Since there is no other Savior beside the Lord, then Jesus must be the Lord. Jesus must be the Lord. God. But there's only one God. And there is a God who is in the scriptures called Father. There is a person called God, and he's he's called Father, but he's God. And then there's a person called the Son, and he is also called God. There's a person, as we studied early on in Acts chapter 5, called the Spirit. And even there he's called God. Yet there's only one God. What does that say? Can't understand it fully, but... We understand one thing. There's three persons, but there's one God. God in three persons. Then Jesus must be Lord and God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says, For the grace, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing notice of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's clear who Jesus Christ is. 
because of time, let's move on to God's plan for Israel and its enemies. Verse 14 now. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea. And by the way, you notice that phrase a few times, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and path and a path to the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. The Holy One of Israel was going to change the status, you see, of the Babylonians from conquerors to the conquered. He's going to change the status that much. They were the conquerors, and they were the ones who brought to, you know, Israel, or, or Judah, actually, and specifically, into captivity. But eventually, at a certain time, they were going to be the conquered, and that through Cyrus. And along with this, of course, is the return of the Judeans to their land. So in all of this, there comes a reminder of the mighty acts of the Lord when Israel was delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. That's the reminder here. Notice there in verse 16, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path to the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. You know, at that time, with the, with the Egyptians, he made a way through the sea and a path to the mighty waters, didn't he? Additionally, he drew the Egyptian army out to destroy it, and that's exactly what he did. The children of Israel rejoiced because the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea. The ones who were coming to destroy them Pharaoh had given specific orders to destroy all the people. And God brought them through, delivered them, and then he destroyed the Egyptian army. When Israel was demanding to have a king like the other nations, God was angry with his people. And it came down to Samuel to have to pray unto the Lord for his people. But he makes this statement, Samuel does, in 1 Samuel 12, verses 23 and 24, when he says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, which is a reminder that it is a sin for us not to seek the face of the Lord, not to pray. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. And notice what he says, For consider what great things He has done for you. Consider what great things He has done for you. Remember the great things that the Lord has done for you. Remember them. Never put them out or, you know, put them in the archives. I mean, we can keep them in the back of our heart and our mind, but we should always have them with us. The great things that God has done. The amazing things that God has done. Just, just even think of your own life. How He changed you from what you were to what you are today in Jesus. Some of you would say, that's a miracle. That's, that's right, it is a miracle. Because He changed a stony heart in exchange for a, for a heart of flesh and he, got, he gave us life through Jesus Christ that's, that's a miracle we ought to remember the great things that God has done we, we should never be you know, hanging our heads or, or complaining about one thing or another as if God never did anything good to you or good for you 
You know, you've got to get out of that, you know. You've got to slap yourself. Ten times in the morning just to wake up. Remember the good things that God has done. And notice in verse 18, he says, Do not remember the former things. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that just to forget the things that God has done. But now God is dealing with something a little different here. Now understand, he says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now a lot of the old things that he doesn't want us to remember, of course, is the things that he forgets himself, which is what? Our sins. Our ugliness, our wickedness, our evil. Those are good former things to forget. But when the Lord forgives and restores his people, he wants them to forget the failures of the past, witness for him in the present, and proclaim his promises for the future. That's our life, folks. Listen again. He wants us to forget the failures of the past. He wants us to witness for him in the present. And he wants us to proclaim his promises for the future. And oh, what the plans for Israel are from the Lord. What the Lord plans for the land of Israel. This is touching where we are today. One road would lead from Babylon to Jerusalem. Another road, many years later, will take them from all parts of the world to the holy city of Zion. God has resources and plans that that none know about, but God has them, and he can do it. Notice verse 20 and 21, The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Once again, this part is of uh, this is part of the fulfilling of the purpose God created his people for, giving him glory. This is that to which we are called. And again, to remember the great things he does. I give waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And he talks of the people who are formed for himself to declare his praise. Declare his praise. And lastly, here in verses 22 on, he says, But you have not called me, O, o Jacob. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you, have not, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. Now we're back to reality here. But it doesn't change what God's heart has been for his people. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And then he says this. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. So there's still a lot of work to be done in Israel, a lot of work to be done in the people. But it's interesting that we find here a list of the things Israel failed to do while they were in exile. They hadn't worn themselves out for the Lord. They hadn't called upon him nor honored him with sacrifices. And while they felt burned out and wearied, they burdened God with their sins and wearied him with their iniquities. And yet, in the midst of this hard-heartedness, the Lord extends his mercies towards them. 
He will forgive them at the earliest opportunity and forget their sins. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my sake. Despite all their sin and disregard for the Lord, God still loves His people and desires their humble return home. The prodigal son comes to mind in this last passage in Isaiah 43. The prodigal considered the father a weary burden in his life to be relieved, and so he went on his way with his inheritance. But the father still loved him and was ready to forgive all the sin as soon as the prodigal returned home humbly. This is what we see in the final verses of this chapter. Your first father sinned, verse 27, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. He says to them, you are sinners through and through. So stop trying to justify yourselves. With humility, look to me. Look to me for salvation. I want to close with two passages of Scripture, Isaiah 45 and Matthew 11. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22 God says, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look, verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Look to me. This is what Jesus says when he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. God says, look to me. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. There's our example of coming in humility. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God amazes us with his long-suffering, with his patience. What amazing God we serve. Who will look at the self-willed, rebellious heart of Israel and yet say to them, you're going to have to go through certain times of trial because of this, but I'm just telling you right now, I have redeemed you and one day Israel will see their Messiah and they'll see the scars and they'll see the prince the piercings folks those are the most important piercings that there have ever been in the history of man Those are the most important marks on any body. The ones that Jesus took for us. And Israel will see them. They'll see him whom they pierced. And they'll look to him. And be saved. And one day they will, they will obey Jesus when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. If I don't stop now, we'll be here as long as we were last night. So let's stand.